You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this word from Deuteronomy, and I thank you for your living nature. Lord, I thank you that you are not just the God of a people that lived so long ago, but that you're the living God of this people in our day and right now. And I pray, Father, that you would make your word live for us, that it would breathe for us, that it would have life for us, that there would be wisdom here for us, an invitation here for us. Oh, Lord, please woo us into your presence, I pray. You are trying to woo your people with the words that were just read for us, and I pray that you would woo us even now by your Holy Spirit. We've taken communion, Father. The mercy of God has rested upon us in Christ, and now I pray that we would hear the clarion call to come and remember the Lord and take care of your soul and keep watch over it diligently and seek the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and I pray, Father, that these words would have the power to effect change in the way that we actually live our lives. I pray that it would be more than just words that we hear in Sunday service, Father, and that warm our hearts, but I pray that it would be a word that has power and causes us to reassess the way we're living and causes us to reorder our lives by the power of Christ and for the glory of Christ. And I thank you, Lord, because you promise us that your word never goes out except that it comes back, producing all the fruit that it was intended to produce. And so I thank you, Father, and I rest myself now in your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, beloved, Deuteronomy is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It has been long memorized and otherwise cherished by generation after generation of Jews for 3,500 years now, and that's no exaggeration. It is quoted over 50 times in the New Testament, which makes it only uh, second or third, I suppose, to the books of Psalms and Isaiah. So it is the third most quoted book in the, in the New Testament, which shows you something of the prominence that it has for us as, as believers. And if you want to get a flavor for just how important this book is in, in, in our lives as well as in the life of Israel, then read the book of Deuteronomy very carefully sometime and then compare it to the teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. If you carefully compare Deuteronomy to the teachings of Jesus, you'll see that the design and desire of Christ was not to be an original teacher, but to be faithful to the things that God had been saying for many, many, many centuries. The Lord was trying to get his people to go back to what God had been saying all along. Jesus was original in the sense that he was the God-man and the only God-man that ever did or ever will walk this earth. But his teachings were deeply rooted in the Word of God, and, and particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. You, you, you'll know, as well as I know, that his mind was saturated with all of the books of the Old Testament. Of course, he's Jesus. He loved the Word of God from cover to cover. But please, take me up on this. Pay attention in the next six or eight weeks as we go through this book, and then think about it as you read the Gospels, and you'll see that Jesus was particularly indebted to this book. It's it's a very important book. And if you want to do a similar exercise, you could read Deuteronomy carefully and compare it to the book of James. I mention this because I know that two of our women's studies are going through the book of James right now, and ladies, I want to urge you to pay close attention in the next six or eight weeks as we work through Deuteronomy. Because it's not as though it's just point-for-point relation, but there is so much overlap between Deuteronomy and James that it's really breathtaking. James was a Jew. His mind was steeped in the things of God as revealed in the books that we've been studying over the last year or so. And in particular, Deuteronomy really influenced him, and you'll see that if, if you prayerfully pay close attention. And of course, in the fall when we start the book of Hebrews, we'll see how indebted the author of Hebrews was to the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes it 16 times, which is a lot. And then he directly alludes to the book another 18 times, which is a lot. So the book of Hebrews is deeply, deeply rooted in the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll see that more in the fall. All to say... This book is a very important book. It is one of the most important books in the Old Testament and, in fact, in the whole Bible. And I pray that we'll pay careful attention over the next six or eight weeks as we work our way through this divine and really helpful and really worship-filled book. The name Deuteronomy is a Greek word, and it's a compound word, and it literally means second law. It's derived from chapter 17, verse 18, where Moses tells the new kings of Israel that would be coming in in coming days, he tells them to make a, a copy of the law for themselves, or a second law for themselves, so that they would have their own copy to read, and to understand, and to memorize, and to obey, and to work out all of the various aspects of their regime. The Lord wanted the kings of Israel to be saturated with the word of God, and so they were to make a, a second law, if you will, or a copy of the law. And this, this, this phrase, second law, works well for us as well, because uh, Deuteronomy is essentially a restatement, a reiteration of what Moses has been saying in, in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers especially. So I think one of the reasons why it's had so much influence over so many centuries 
is because it's a kind of cliff notes to the law of Moses, if you will. So if you're a cliff notes person, you don't really like to read the original thing, you like to get the cliff notes and just get the idea, the book of Deuteronomy is for you. And I I think, in fact, that's why it's had so much influence, because it is a, a succinct summary of all that God was doing and all that God revealed through Moses and in the life of the the people of Israel. When it comes to the structure of this book, it is essentially a collection of three addresses or sermons even we could say that Moses gave to the people of Israel as they were sitting just east of the promised land and getting ready to go in and take the land that God had given to them. So we'll see as we go along that three different times Moses rises up and essentially preaches to the people of Israel. And what he's trying to do is is fix their eyes on the Lord their God. He's trying to persuade them to saturate their minds with the word of God and to inflame their hearts with the the passion for God that had led them on this far and, and that would lead them into the future. They were just about to go in and take possession of what God had given to them, and it was crucially important that they fix their eyes on on God. I was going to say Christ, but in this sense it would be Yahweh, the Lord, their God. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, you'll see that Moses says this, that his intent in this book was to explain the law. So Deuteronomy is not just a repetition of what's gone before. It's an interpretation of the previous 40 years of the life of Israel. Moses had spent so many days and months and years receiving wisdom from God and teaching that wisdom to the people and writing it down in books, and now he's interpreting it for them. He's reminding them. He's reiterating it for them. He's trying to fix their eyes on what God has been doing so that they'll be prepared for what God is about to do. God is about to do some amazing things, and it's important that they see it in the flow of the, of the history of what God has been doing, and that is really what Moses is up to in this book. Even though that their entering into the promised land was going to be a, about a, a, a military campaign, we know that they went in there and took that land by force. But Moses, in his heart of hearts, knew that primarily this campaign to go take the promised land was not about the military, it was about worship. This taking of the promised land was about God keeping a 500 plus year old promise to give his people that land. And it was about that God bringing them in, that God delivering them from their enemies, that God giving them power to overcome peoples that were in fact much stronger than they were. This whole movement was about the purposes of God on the earth and not the plans of men on the earth. And so Moses knew that above all things, They needed to fix their eyes on God. Incredibly important. Yes, they needed to organize their people. Yes, they needed to train their troops. But far more important, they needed to fix their eyes on God and serve Him with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. This is what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. It's Moses' attempt to explain the law of God so that the people of God fix their eyes upon God. That's what it's all about. It is designed to inspire worship. It's designed to inspire submission. It's designed to lead God's people into the place where God can bless them. Now, as for us, we are not Israel. We are not camped out at the eastern edge of the Jordan River, right? We're near to a river, but we're on the northern edge of it, if I got my geography right, and we're not about to cross over it and take Otsego by storm, right? We're not doing that. However, this word applies to us 
just as much as it applied to the people then because the God of Israel who lived then lives now. And the God who was king over all lands then is still king over all lands now. And the God who was forming for himself a people then is still forming himself a a people now. Only now he's doing it through Jesus Christ. He's winning worshipers to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation on this earth. And together he's building us into a bride and he is leading us into the promised land. He is doing that right this very moment. He is shaping and building and empowering his bride to seek and save the lost and to preach the gospel in all of the earth so that one day when he returns, he can receive us as his bride and bring us into that eternal promised land that will never, ever, ever fade away. The same God who did this is doing all of this that I just mentioned now. He's alive and well. He's with us. He's speaking to us. And so, beloved, this word is for us. This book of Deuteronomy is a living book for us, and I urge you to open your mouth wide and receive all that God has for us in these coming weeks. With this in mind, let's turn our attention to Moses' first address, and if you'll turn to chapter 1, verse 6, I'm just going to summarize the first three chapters pretty quickly here, but his first address starts in chapter 1, verse 6, and it goes to chapter 4, verse 40. Moses begins by drawing the people's attention to the time when God commanded them to pull up stakes and move from Mount Sinai toward the promised land. So he doesn't go back to Egypt. He doesn't go to the Exodus. Rather, he starts when they're at Sinai, and now it's time for them to move. It's time for them to go up and possess the land that God had promised to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, some 500 years previous to this event. Before they left... Moses, at the urging of his father-in-law, you'll remember, appointed leaders over the people of Israel with him. Leaders of thousands, leaders of uh, hundreds, leaders of fifties, and leaders of tens. And he tells the people here in Deuteronomy that the reason he did that was because he felt overwhelmed by the people. First of all, they were so numerous, he just felt like it was so much work, he couldn't handle it on his own. He needed helpers, and so he appointed leaders. And he also told them again, bluntly, as he had told them many times before, your grumbling spirit just overwhelmed me. No matter what I did, no matter what the Lord did, you just complained and grumbled and complained and grumbled. And when you were done complaining, you grumbled. And when you're done grumbling, you complained. And I just couldn't handle it. So we appointed leaders over you as people, and you, and you know that well. And then once those leaders were appointed, we set out for the promised land. We took off out of the desert of the peninsula of Sinai and we came up on the south side of the land. And when we camped there, you'll remember that we sent some spies into the land to check it out and see what the situation was. And when your spies came back, they said, yes, yes, the land is good, it's plentiful, it's, it's fruitful. There are cities there, but the problem is the people are strong and they're tall and they're well-trained and they're well-armed and there's no way that we can lick them. And so in this way, the spies put the fear of of men into the hearts of the people more than the fear of God, and the people of Israel actually refused to do what God had called them to do. The people of Israel essentially looked God in the face and said, no, we will not do what you have called us to do because we don't trust in you. Rather, in fear, we're going to shrink back and do what seems right to us. We're going to stay right here for now, and we're going to think about killing Moses, appointing another leader, and going back to Egypt. You'll remember those stories. The Lord was not happy with them about this. 
He was very angry, in fact, and so he rebuked them sharply, and he told them that every single warrior of that generation would never enter into the promised land except for two of them, Caleb and Joshua, the two people who were filled with faith and said, yes, the people of that land are strong, but our God is stronger, and by his might we can take them. We can go into the land, we can lick them, we can do what God has called them to do because the Lord is our God. So those two would be allowed to go into the promised land. Every other warrior would have to spend the next 40 years in that arid desert just outside the promises of God, and in fact, they would die in that place. And so it is that Israel wandered from one place to another for 38 years. And the Bible tells us in in the 38th year that the last of the warriors of that generation finally died off. And it was at that time when God took his people from the southern part of Israel and began to move them. And you'll remember as we were in Numbers, we saw God move his people up to the north and camp them right to the east of the Jordan River where they could look over and see the promised land. They could see the city of Jericho that they were just about to conquer. They were right on the edge of the promises of God and there two kings came against them with military might. But God raised up a new generation of warriors in Israel and caused them to defeat King Sihon and King Og with great power and by the might of God. And Israel, in fact, took all of their cities and began to settle on that place east of the Jordan. You'll remember that two and a half of the tribes of Israel, Gad, Reuben, and half a tribe of Manasseh, asked Moses and the Lord if they could permanently settle in that place east of the Jordan because it was good for them. They were herdsmen, and it was a, a good place for them. So Moses granted them their request with the provision that first They would have to go into the promised land and help the people of God fight to take the whole land and then they could come back out and possess what God had just given them. And so having granted this bequest, Moses then turned the reins over to Joshua. And if you look at chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, you'll see here, Moses is not actually turning the reins over here. He's reminding them about the time when he did turn the reins over, not too far before he's speaking now. But in chapter 321, he says, Your eyes, Joshua, have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. So you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. He's trying to strengthen Joshua with faith to say, Brother, it's not about might or power. It's about the Spirit of God. It is not by might nor by power that we go in and take hold of the promises of God. It is by the Spirit of God who is unconquerable and does everything that he sets out to do. Remember this, Joshua, and lead your people, uh, God's people, accordingly. And then Moses pled with God one more time and said, Please, Father, please, mercy, mercy, let me go in and see the land. Moses had spent so much of his life leading this people to this moment, and he wanted so bad to go in and see the land, but the Lord said, no, I've already made up my mind, so come up to this mountain, it was called Pisgah, where you can look over and and see the land, and you can rejoice in what I have done, but there you will breathe your last, and I will take you to be with myself forever. Moses was a really humble man, and so he didn't argue with God, he just settled in and did what the Lord asked him to do. Moses is reminding the people of all this stuff. It's a new generation camped out at the edge of the promises of God and it's time for them to go in and seize those promises and he needs them to remember what God has done. 
And so with all of this history in mind now, he turns in chapter 4, verses 1 through 40, to, to now exhort them. This is the sermon part of his address. He, he's now laid out some facts. Now he's wanting to exhort the, the people of God. And he begins in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Let me read these verses for us again. I'm going to add a little thing here and there. And now, O Israel, Moses says, Listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. Why should you do that? So that you may live. And so that you may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. You shall not add to the word that I commend you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commend you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, that place where some of you were, were wooed into idolatry and you worshipped a God that was not the Lord. You saw how he reacted. You saw his feelings. You saw his responses. You saw his wrath pour out upon you. You saw his wrath pour out upon those who had forsaken him. You saw his wrath pour out upon those who had lured you into idolatry. You watched God protect the glory of his name and the good of his people for the Lord your God destroyed among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor but you you who are remaining here you held fast to the Lord and you are alive today see I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me these things didn't come from me they came from God and I passed them on to you why so that you should do them in the land that you are entering into, take possession of it. So keep them and do them, because if you'll do that, they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples. And when the peoples of this earth hear it and see it, they will say, surely this nation, Israel, the Jewish nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? The nations of the world have gods that they worship, but they're just idols. They're nothing. They're nothing. They're not personal. They're not intimate. They don't relate to the people. And even in our own day, beloved, look, look at Hindus, look at Muslims, look at Buddhists. Look at other religions. They don't have a God that's intimate like the Lord and walks with His people and talks with His people by His Spirit and guides them into His blessings and guides them into His ways. Oh, Israel, Moses says, who has a God like you have who walks so intimately and passionately with His people? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous, so right, so true, so good, so wise, so life-giving, so joy-producing as you, as I set before you today? Moses is saying, Israel, open your eyes to see who the Lord is and to see what He's done and remember Him and obey Him, seek Him, follow Him, love Him that His blessings might remain upon you. Devote yourself to hearing and doing His Word. This was the plea of Moses to the people of Israel and it led him to his exhortation in verses 9 through 31. The verse Nine, in specific, is where I take the title for today's sermon from. In order to walk in this way that Moses is trying to woo the people into, they would have to take close care of their souls. That, that word literally means to guard over. So get in your image the mind of armed guards looking over a fortress or something like that. Moses is saying, do that to your soul. 
Put guards around your soul. Take great care. Keep your soul diligently and make sure, turn it toward the Lord your God. Push it toward the Lord your God, lest you forget what he has done and forsake him in his life-giving acts. And so it is that Moses urged the people to teach their children and to teach their grandchildren the word, the will, the ways, the wisdom of the Lord. He wanted them to be so filled with passion for God that they would spill over onto the coming generations. And most of you know that our daughter Rachel is just about to graduate. I'm proud of you, young lady. She's got finals this week, and she's a PSEO student over at Anoka Ramsey. She'll be actually graduating this Friday from there with an AA degree. A couple weeks later, graduating from high school, and uh, God willing, going off to the University of Minnesota this fall. Our work of parenting in her life is not done, though, right? Amen? Some of you have children who've already grown up. This is our first go at it. So you know, I'm not done parenting. Isn't that right? I still am in the the heart of my parenting that's left to do for the rest of Rachel's life is to help her see and love the Lord God Almighty. That's the heart of what my job is. It's not to fund stuff and give her wisdom, except that the wisdom is look to God, love God, pursue God, have passion for God. And if God grants her grace and she finds a husband and begins having children of her own, the Lord commands me now to invest the things of God into my grandchildren. If you're a grandparent, let me tell you something. You have a a major and joy-producing obligation in your grandkids' lives. And it's not just to spoil them and buy them presents, although feel free to do that too. Your main obligation is to help them see and feel and taste and savor the glory of God Almighty that they might love Him and teach their children and their children and their children. This is what God is saying to the people, beloved. He's saying, have such passion for God that you're like a fountain that overflows onto the coming generations. Your children and even their children and even their children if God would give you life. Spill over with the words, the will, the ways, the wisdom of God. Make a life of following Him and then spill over. As for His adult hearers and their life at the moment, Moses again warns them in chapter 3 verse 15 and following or 4, 15 and following, I'm sorry to watch over their own souls with great care so that they wouldn't commit idolatry again. You'll notice that he's always warning them against idolatry because they're so prone to do it, and so are we. John Calvin, I believe it was, is the one who said that our hearts are idol-making factories. We can make idols out of just about anything, right? Even good things. We can make an idol out of, out of ministry. You can make an idol out of your family, You can make an idol out of anything, even things that God has given you a blessing, if you end up putting second things first rather than first things first. And the Lord God always has to come first. We are idol-making factories. And so uh, Moses is pleading with the people, don't do this. Don't go in that way. You've seen what happens when you take your eyes off of God and put them onto idols. You have seen the discipline of the Lord for four decades now. And all of your, your parents and grandparents have died in this wilderness. Don't go there again. But even as he's warning them, he can't help but highlight the mercy of God. I hope it's breathtaking to you as it is to me as we've gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now Deuteronomy. How much the mercy of God plays a part. It is everywhere. Moses is telling them, don't commit idolatry, because if you do, God will kick you out of this land, even as he's kicking these people out of the land. 
Don't think that he'll play favorites. So don't break the second commandment and worship him. But listen, if you do, if you do that, and I think Moses, we'll see later in Deuteronomy, had the suspicion that they were going to do that. If you do that, here's what you do. Look to the Lord your God in the land where he sends you and cry out to him because he is a merciful God. And even if you sin to the point where he banishes you from the land that he promised you, if you cry out to him again, he will hear you because he is a merciful God and he's faithful to his covenant and he will remember all the way back to the day when he promised Abraham to be faithful to him all the way to the very, very end and God will forgive you. God will bring you into the fold again. Oh, what a merciful God they served and what a merciful God we served And so, serve, present tense. And so with that, Moses brings his address to a close in verses 32 through 40 by encouraging the people once more to think through the unique nature of what God had done in their midst. He asked them some questions. Has any God ever spoken to the people of any land in the way that the Lord our God has spoken to us? And if you answer yes to that question, has anybody ever heard the Lord God Almighty speak out loud and audibly and lived through it? Has anybody come face to face with God and lived? Do you remember when they were at Mount Sinai, those tribal leaders set up a table. It was kind of like a first Lord's Supper back at Mount Sinai. And they had a feast and the Bible says they beheld God. These human beings saw some kind of visible manifestation of the glory of God. I, I feel persuaded that it was a, 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 what they call a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ. But the point is they saw God and lived. What other nation could say that? Has anyone had ever had any God that took one nation out of another nation by such miraculous means and drew them into a place of military success and, and, of, and of such a worshipful richness as you, O Israel. Oh, who has a God so kind and tender and intimate as the Lord, even as he's displaying that kind of a, a power? So, You should familiarize yourself with the different gods of the nations. It's really helpful to understand our God. And I remember as I studied the gods of Egypt and the ancient Near East when I was in college and seminary, and they tended to either be gods of power or gods of, of, of mercy, but hardly anyone was both. But the Lord, our God, is both. He's a God of great, tremendous power. He's the God who stretched out the universe, who created a hundred billion galaxies and keeps them all going just because he says so. The only reason that my flesh isn't flinging into a million pieces right now is because God says that it should stay together. He's doing it just as he's upholding everything else. He has a power we will never understand. Never, ever, ever understand. Last night, I got woke up about, I don't know what time in the morning it was, with, a, with just this mighty crack of thunder. Anybody else get woke up by that last night? Wow! I actually found myself worshiping because I love the sound of thunder. I was like, yeah, you go, God! You do it, Lord! Oh, what a wimpy little tiny display of the power of God that, could, that can sustain an entire universe of galaxies. I feel very impressed with loud thunder, but before God it's nothing. And yet, how merciful and tender and intimate is this God? How intimate. 
Oh, my mind right now is flashing back to so many days when I sit there in my quiet times before the Word of God and the Spirit of God ministers to my life and speaks to me like He's this close to my face, like a father to a son holding me in His arms. How can a God be so great and so intimate at the same time? Well, this was the God of Israel. And Moses wanted them to know that God revealed Himself like that to them in order to show his glory to them that they might bless all the nations of the world. God was specifically attempting to pull off the mask about who he is so that his great name could be glorified all over this earth. And so the point Moses is really pressing into Israel now is, Israel, you have a a big, big job on this earth, and that is to glorify the name of God everywhere. And so... Crucial to doing that is to remember, 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 remember the Lord and remember what he has done. I think I've told you before that my dad used to tell me all the time that his forgetter was the best working part of his body. Whatever the forgetter is, it worked really good for my dad. He's forgetting stuff all the time. And I don't think it's just my dad. I think we're all pretty good at forgetting, aren't we? And so... Moses, the Lord through Moses is telling the people, remember, remember, remember what I've done that you might have eyes to see what I'm about to do. Oh, what an important word this is for us. And I I hope that we see that Moses is not beckoning the people into duty for the sake of duty, but he's beckoning them into duty for the sake of blessing. And what he's saying is that if you remember God and follow in the ways of God, you will know the blessings of God all the day of your life. He's beckoning them to obedience for the sake of fruitfulness. He's beckoning them to faithfulness for the sake of love and the sake of joy. This isn't just religious duty stuff. This isn't do what you're supposed to do because you're supposed to do it. This is come and follow and love and listen and and, and pursue the Lord your God because He wants to bless and bless and bless and bless and bless all the days of your life, but you have to do it His way. That's the word. That's the word. This message was so crucial for them to understand, and it's crucial for us to understand as well. So with that, Moses draws this address to a close. We'll look at his second address, at least the first half of it, next week, which starts in chapter 4, verse 41. But for now, I want to just take a few minutes and try to apply all of this to our lives today. And honestly, this week, I don't find this very challenging, because I think the application to our lives, it seems pretty obvious to me. It almost feels to me like Moses could just preach the exact same sermon to us and not even tell us that he had preached this sermon somewhere else before. It applies to us. So I have two words for us in closing. One is remember, and the other is to take care. Remember and take care. So the first word, remember. I want to encourage you to have discipline in your life to remember what the Lord has done. Remember what God has done in Christ. You know why we do this table Month in and month out, month in and month out. And honestly, if I had my way, we would do this week in and week out. There's some churches that like to do it every week, others don't. But Jesus said the reason that we do this is to do what? To remember, right? Do this in remembrance of me. What's he saying? Don't forget what I've done. You need to hear the gospel day by day by day. Hear the gospel. Remember what the Lord your God has done. Mike, I really needed to hear what you said this morning. Such a a simple restatement of the gospel, but I needed to hear what you said. You said, don't 
fix your life and come to God, but throw yourself on the mercy of God. I needed to hear that. Right now I've been working on some stuff in my life and I realized as he spoke, I've been kind of trying to do that. I've been trying to put my makeup on. To, well, maybe that's a bad illustration. <laughs> I'm not, not that kind of guy, okay? I've been trying to make myself look good and then come to God. Are you pleased with me now, Father? And he says, it doesn't work that way. Throw yourself on the mercy of Christ and I will fix you up. I will do what you cannot do. Oh, that's the gospel, beloved. We have to remember it. I thank you, Mike. Just for the simple, simple restatement of the gospel. Don't forget it. Don't let yourself get bored with it. What Jesus Christ did on that cross and in that grave and by rising from the dead was more profound and powerful than we can know. And there's no way to come into what Christ has for us if we don't remember what he's already done for us. There's just no way. Amen? When I was in India, I was there preaching. I I had a chance in, in those days, I think, to teach or preach 50 or 60 times in the space of one month. Just unbelievable. If you're an American and you have a Bible there, it doesn't matter if you're a a pastor or not, you're going to preach. Blair, probably the same thing in Haiti. If you're an American, you have a Bible, you can read it, you're the preacher for this Sunday. So, But one thing I noticed pretty quickly there was they kind of had a legalistic form of religion, that they were trying to work their way to God. And so I spent a lot of time with the pastor, just working through books of the Bible to help him see, no, Christ has done this for us. And it turned lots of lights on for him. It changed the way that he taught his people. And and I just want to say, we all need that, beloved. We are prone to try to earn our way to God and and we need to remember what God has done in Jesus Christ. So so remember, remember, remember what God has done. And I also want to encourage you to remember what he's done for you personally. One of my, my favorite dead mentors, I call him, is John Bunyan. He wrote... He's famous for one book, The Pilgrim's Progress, but he actually wrote about 66 books. And one of those books he wrote, he he really urged his readers to think in great detail about how God had saved them. And so I did that at one time. I, I ended up writing about 20 or 30 pages about all the steps of how God had saved me, to think through every detail of it. And the reason John Bunyan said to do that is because there's, there's grace everywhere. And we need to remember the grace that manifested in our lives in particular. The stories of Jesus are not just stories we read about another people in another time, but this is a living God who's manifesting in our time and in our lives, right? So if you will take the time to remember what he's done, you will have the eyes to see his grace in your life, and you need to do that. Remember, remember, remember all that the Lord has done for you. And as you do that, pray and ask God for the space to maybe come up here and tell the rest of us what God has done for you. Give glory to God for his living work in your lives. Oh, beloved, like the Israelites, we need to hear this word. We need to remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. It's a discipline. It's a real discipline, which leads to the second word, take care. And keep diligent watch over your souls. Keep diligent watch over it. It takes work is the bottom line. In order to remember the word and the will and the ways of God, we have to build a kind of life that helps us to do just that. And the bottom line at the end of the day, it's just all about hard work at one, at one level. Now God is, God is forming us as his own people. God is doing all the work in us, but he gives us a part And our part is to seek him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. You know the verses like work your salvation out with fear and trembling. 
Make space in your life for the Lord. Seek the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And we need to build a life like that. Just like a farmer who has to work hard in order to get the harvest, right? And if they don't work hard, there's no harvest. Or like an athlete who has to train hard, like all the Olympians are getting ready for this summer's Olympics. They have to train hard in order to just compete, much less win the prize. And if they don't train, they're not going to make the team. And if they don't train, they're not going to win. That's for sure. Paul uses these very metaphors to say that's what the Christian life is like. We have to make a life of the things of God, not just a hobby. You can't just save Jesus for the weekend and then go about the rest of your life if you really want to follow him and know him and enter into his blessings. This is not a a work that we do in our flesh. We do it by the power of God. But what I'm saying is he gives us a part. He wants us to want him. He wants our hearts to have passion for him. So it just comes down to building a disciplined life. And at the center of that life is the word of God. Moses said to the people, seek the Lord your God by hearing listening and obeying his word. It's all about the word of God. It really is. I would go so far as to say, except for, for exceptions to the rule, like let's say a guy gets saved out in the boondocks in China and doesn't have access to a Bible. Let me just set that person aside for the moment and say for all the rest of us, there is no way to grow in Christ without the word of God being richly saturated in our, in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. There's no way. The Word of God is absolutely necessary to our growth in Christ. So we have to build a way of life where we're saturated with it. We have to read it and study it and memorize it and meditate upon it and talk about it with one another and teach it with one another. Uh, Apply it to, to our lives together and help each other. We have to live by the Word of God because the God of the Word is on our side. And the God of the Word has said, people, I want to bless you with all that's in me. I want to bless you but you have to do things my way. So come to my word. Know my word. Listen to my word. By my spirit, obey my word. And I will bless and bless and bless and bless you all the days of your life. That is the word of God to us to this day. He is wooing us into a place of blessing, beloved, is the point. That's the point. Remember the Lord and take care to pursue him because he longs to bless your life. He really does. That has always been the heart of God, and that is the heart of God in Christ for us now. So let me pray that God would help us to do just that. Father, I thank you so much for this living word that you gave to Israel and that you're now giving to us. And I pray for power by the Holy Spirit to remember you and all the things that you've done. I pray for power by the Holy Spirit to love your word more than anything else, more than our gadgets, more than our hobbies, more than our careers more than anything else, Father, that we would love you and cling to your word. And I pray that as we saturate our minds with your word, that your spirit would ignite a flame in our hearts for you, that we would follow you all of the days of our lives. Oh, Father, please let us, let you woo us into your way of life. Father, I feel like we're sitting at the edge of the promised land ourselves as a little church here. I feel like you're about to bring us into great and mighty things that you have been planning to do for some time. I see so much developing and I'm so excited about what you have in our near and mid future. 
And I just feel like we're sitting at the edge of the promised land and you're saying to us to come and remember what I have done over these years and remember my word and love my word and cherish my word and cherish my spirit and I will bless you in ways that you cannot imagine. So please, Father, let us hear and obey your word today. We pray in the mighty and merciful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.